Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of current and classic horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews and discussions may include spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Does anybody live here? Well, not since 1963 when it happened. Every kid in Haddonfield thinks this place is haunted. Then maybe right. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I, I am. Uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. What do we do? He's been here once tonight. I think he'll come back. I'm going to wait for him. I still think I should notify the radio and television. No. If you do that, they'll see him on every street corner. They'll look for him in every house. Just tell your men to keep their mouths shut and their eyes open. Welcome to another installment to my year-long Masters of Horror celebration, in which I'm joined by a guest every Friday to chat about one of their favorite films from our month's featured director. For the month of January, we're honoring none other than the legendary rebel of horror himself, John Carpenter. And today I'm joined by returning friend of the show, Mike, to chat about John Carpenter's Halloween. Mike, welcome back to the show, man. Hey, Jay. Thanks for having me. I always look forward to uh, chatting horror movies with you. The film you picked today is, I'm, I'm excited always to talk about John Carpenter, but I'm especially excited to talk about Halloween because this was actually my first John Carpenter movie, um, and it's remained one of my favorite slashers, so I'm really looking forward to chatting about this with you today. One of the all-time greats. So you picked John Carpenter's third feature film for us to chat about, Halloween, which he directed and co-wrote with his creative partner and producer, Deborah Hill. Uh, the film centers around 15 years after Michael Myers murders his sister, and he's returned to the town of Haddonfield, making for a Halloween night Laurie Strode and her friends will never forget. So I kind of just want to start by asking you kind of your Halloween origin story, the first time you saw it, and what about the film really stuck with you all these years? I first saw it when I was probably 10 or 11. I rented a bunch of videos with my friends, kind of like we did for The Exorcist. It might have been the same night, actually. And um, we actually watched, we got, we didn't get through The Exorcist, but we got through Halloween. And I, what I really, what stuck with me, and I guess what sticks with everybody is Michael Myers. And just that mask and his looming presence throughout the whole movie, when he's not on screen, he's still in your mind. You know, it, it's, it's super creepy to this day. You know, he's, he's just everywhere at once, kind of. He's this omnipotent presence throughout the whole movie. And uh, especially as a, as a kid, it really creeped me out. It was definitely a defining slasher just because, obviously, like you, I saw it very young. It was one of the first ones, I think, that I saw. And it feels very accessible in a way that I don't necessarily know a lot of other slashers are. I mean, for me, at least, it was... I watched it, I think my dad showed it to me when I was, like, 10 or 11. But it was the first horror movie that I saw that was set in a place that looked somewhat familiar to me, right? And I think that's kind of the magic right. of it, is that it doesn't take place at Camp Crystal Lake, right? It doesn't take place at a summer camp. It doesn't take place in a dream world where Freddy Krueger is gonna right. jump out and get you. It takes place in a perfectly nondescript suburban neighborhood. 
And for me, that was something that made me look at like my neighborhood that I grew up in. And I was like, oh shit. There's, I remember there's streets in the film that look like streets that I've seen around my neighborhood or my neck of the woods type of thing. And it really, it brought the horror home for me in a way that movies that were kind of like monster focused or more supernatural hadn't before. Absolutely. It really makes you not want to walk around at night. I grew up in a suburban setting too. And it, it just, it makes it, it makes where you live creepy. Like you said, it brings the horror home. And and it is, it's not the first slasher movie, right? But it's the one you should maybe watch first if you're gonna get into slashers because it's just perfectly done. And it's, it's just really, really, um, like you said, accessible and relatable almost. Like it's just, it's your life if there was a crazy guy walking around killing everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. It's probably like the least far-fetched of all the slashers, right? Again, it being right. devoid of the supernatural, at least in the first film, for the first, I don't know, it's like 98% of the movie is pretty grounded in a lot of ways. Granted, the sequels go off in some pretty uh, some pretty wild and supernatural directions and whatnot, but it is a film that, I mean, you'd, you'd leave the theater, you'd stop watching it, and then you're just like looking over your shoulder and whatnot. It's like, he could just run up on you because... That's what he does to all of his victims in a way that, I mean, at least for me, I was just like, oh man, I should probably like make sure all the windows and the doors are locked and stuff like that. Which they don't do in this movie at <laughs> all. They go out of their way to leave every door open behind them. You know? Right. But uh, some just kind of like bullet point facts about Halloween that uh, I find incredible now looking back on it, but like the reading and the documentaries that I've been watching on it, it really is remarkable just how much of kind of this thrown together rock and roll atmosphere was in creating this movie. Like this was John Carpenter's third movie. Uh, Before this, he had done Dark Star, which was a supernatural movie. And then he did Assault on Precinct 13, which was like an action Western essentially. And so this was his first stab at horror. And even though the movie by today's standards, you might think it looks like very low budget and kind of bare bones, it still had a budget of like $300,000, which again, thinking about like, studios actually producing horror movies that sounds like a lot for the time period even though it's considered like an indie budget um but right. but that movie went on to make like 47 million dollars in the US box office off of that 300,000 budget which makes it like the most successful indie i think ever made independent film ever made which is nuts yeah just a little bit of a nice return on that <laughs> you know did pretty well yeah exactly and i mean carpenter was only paid i think 10 grand to write direct and he scored the film which of course, I mean, yes. That's one of the things that I really want to get into in a minute is the score, because one of the links between all the Carpenter films or the ones that I've talked about with people so far is just Carpenter's ability to take a very simple score, a very simple premise, and yet make it into something that withstands the test of time in a way that I don't know many filmmakers can say, because we all have our favorite movies returning kind of to the well from directors that we all love, and yet... I don't know if there's a director like Carpenter that has just such a phenomenal stretch of films, right? I feel like Carpenter, he's got runs where it goes like four or five films in a row that are just bangers. Whereas right. some directors that we might be fans of, it's like, yeah, they make great movies, but in between every classic of theirs, there might be two or three duds in there. That really stems from his creative control in a lot of ways, especially with Halloween. Like He's like, yeah, I'm going to write or co-write, I'm gonna direct, and I'm gonna do the score. And you see him come into that kind of creative responsibility in a way that really 
shows how much these films can flourish that are kind of a majority of the film has his stamp on it, so to speak. Whereas some of the other movies that he makes later on, when he's not in control of certain elements, it almost feels like something's missing from some of those movies. The simplicity of the score you mentioned is perfect because it's, the movie is simple. It's a very simple, straightforward tale. There's no supernatural stuff going on and the score matches it just perfectly. Just that little, here's what's going on, just a little creeping in your head there. This movie stays with you because it's so simple and so well done. You know, it, like <laughs> the things that happen in this movie are very realistic. It, you know, it could, this could really happen, you know, except for maybe Michael driving a car, you know, <laughs> which you could, could get into or whatever. But it's, it's very, very straightforward. It's, it's not dumb in any way. Like it's very well done, but it's, it's simple and straightforward. And that's the best way to make a horror movie. And that's what I think I, I was getting at with like the simplicity of the movie or rather the uh, accessibility of the movie stems from that simplicity. It doesn't take a great deal to buy into anything, right? I mean, it's about right. a guy that escapes from a mental facility and then comes back to the town where he murdered his sister. Like, yeah, there's nothing about that that is unbelievable. Again, there might be some uh, some pause over him driving after being incarcerated for 15 years, but it is a movie after all. But exactly, it really is fantastic, that simplicity in that there's nothing that you can kind of look at and be like, well, that would never happen. Because it's like, well, it's so simple. It's on Halloween night. It's about a guy trying to kill a group of girls. And that's the, that's the whole pitch for the movie. And the fact that this film is as memorable as it is based off of that simplicity, it really shows just how well Carpenter and Deborah Hill are able to really kind of capitalize on simplicity. And then a, take that maybe the attention that goes into crafting a simple story, it gets applied to like the soundtrack. It gets applied to the performances that are so fantastic. And of course, like the cinematography in this movie which I really love. And it it really strikes me as odd that this movie was so considered low budget. And yet, even in 2020, it looks as good as it does. Like There are some really incredible shots in this movie. You know, like uh, it, what comes to mind immediately is um, right after the one, two, three punch in the bedroom of the, the three dead people, then she walks out and she's panicking and, and he, he kind of appears in silhouette over her shoulder. That, I think that's my favorite shot in the movie. And it's so simple and just the way it's lit. I know I know maybe he, um, he, lit, he lit the movie that way because of the budget or something like that, but um, it's, it just serves the movie even more because it's perfect. All you see is his face. You know, we all know what shot I'm talking about. Like it's, it's just perfect and it's simplicity again. Again, coming back to like the idea of this being very much the suburban nightmare, it's what I love so much in that it there's no kind of any there's no standout location amongst the entire movie, right? We there are specific right. locations that we become familiar with, whether it's the kid that Lori is babysitting or the neighbor's house. But at the end of the day, these are just houses in a suburb. And I really like the way that the sheriff of the town frames it to the Loomis at one point. He's like, Do you know what Haddonfield is? It's families, children lined up in rows, and you're telling me they're lining up for a slaughter. Like, that is a line that it really strikes at the core of the film in that this is just a normal kind of like apple pie American town. And all of a sudden there's this unimaginable horror there, but it is very imaginable, right? I mean, if you look at the era this film came out in, what, it came out in uh, 78. I mean, this is the time when like all these serial killers started popping up and then through the 80s and the 90s and all of these things. So... 
I would be, it would be very surreal, I think, to watch this movie in those days when you had serial killers popping up because what about this movie is implausible other than like the very last minute of the movie, which we'll get into. But I mean, there isn't anything very unrealistic about it in the way that it's like, yeah, it's a group of girls being stalked by a crazy guy. How many stories like that have we read over the years and things like that? Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost a little tamer than the actual news, you yeah. know, than stuff that has actually happened, you know. I, I like I know in in one of the sequels I read, I haven't seen it, but they they have a line like so five people got killed in one night, what's the big deal? Right. You know, which which really would be kind of a reaction now or or um to uh to something like this, but it's just the environment it's in and the the direction and the the perfect like it's almost like jaws on land like where (laughs) where you know you you can kind of feel this guy everywhere and uh it's it's really like you said realistic like he's uh there's nothing there's nothing in this movie that you can't believe and that's part of what makes it so scary absolutely and i think that again this film serves as yet another example of carpenter's ability to create tension in the opening moments of the film but before we're even introduced before we have context to anything before we meet a single character i mean it starts with that score and the score of this film which he scored and i think again his breakneck speed of pace and making scores and writing and these things. I think he made the score in three or four days. And imagine make, spending three or four days making something and it just, it precedes you almost because it's probably one of the most memorable uh, tracks in all of horror, like in horror history in terms of soundtracks. I mean, everybody recognizes that or they at least associate it with Halloween, like the, ho- the quote unquote, like holiday, the festivity. I mean, whether or not you've seen Halloween or any of the sequels, you still recognize this is a Halloween song to a certain degree. And I just love how the film opens in that it just starts with a black screen and a pumpkin. And it's kind of as the beat or the uh, tempo of that track picks up and picks up, the pumpkin slowly starts getting closer and closer to the screen. And it's so simplistic. And yet it is very ominous in an opening that you really wouldn't expect to like be that on edge from a pumpkin getting closer and closer to the screen, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's so straightforward and everything he did in this movie is so straightforward. And that's part of why it's so kind of resonant, but like he kind of, it's, it must be difficult as a filmmaker to toe that line between simplistic and dumb. And obviously he, he does that perfectly, but like he took risks by making it so simple, like, like, I know the original um, opening shot was supposed to be like a sidewalk and then you come up on the, the title screen or whatever and then he was convinced or he decided to just make it the jack-o'-lantern thing and he there must have been some part of him that's like that's dumb but then you see it and it's not dumb at all you know but maybe in his head it might have been before like it is a little bit of a risk but it's it's just thank god he made that risk i took that risk rather because it's it's just perfect yeah and again i can't imagine again it was very low budget it was an indie film and yet i can't imagine that deciding to film the sidewalk alternative opening with the uh with the mask on the ground or and or whatever the shot was i can't imagine that would have been incredibly more expensive than the pumpkin angle you know what i mean and so that's an that's a reasonable uh, backup option almost, and so for him to have the foresight to be like, well, it's not necessarily going to save us money, but I just think creatively this is the right opening to start with, and it makes all the difference because 
if it had just been a sidewalk with the music, it's almost different because you're getting context for something. You're getting context, oh, this is going to be in a neighborhood. This is going to be yeah. around Halloween, around a mask. Whereas it's just a pumpkin, which on its own is not very ominous. And yet when you add that music and then you start to see that it's been it's a carved pumpkin and it's a jack-o'-lantern and that just again amplifies this relatively simple shot that just crafts this really great ominous tone that i mean it carries out throughout the entire film because the way that the movie opens then is very seemingly normal at first until we get that great opening kill of uh, michael myers killing his sister but something that i wanted to jump into was just like the shape Michael Myers, this idea of what makes him such a prolific slasher killer for you, because obviously slasher killers are essentially like a dime a dozen almost. We've got Freddy, Jason, Leatherface, all these kind of staples, and then you've got, I don't know how many other hundreds or thousands of slashers, but what about right. Michael Myers really stands out to you? I think what really stands out is his um, inhumanity. Like, there's nothing you can relate to about this guy at all. Like. Freddy has an origin story, uh, uh, Jason has an origin story, and it's all kind of emotional for those two, and at least you can see it that way. But Michael, there's nothing in Michael's background at, at the beginning. He's just a kid who kills his sister and then comes out with this blank look on his face and this bloody knife on his hand, and that's all you know about him. And it's like, okay, he's, he's fucked from the very beginning. Like, he's just, that's just who he is. And, and his doctor, Dr. Loomis, of course, the reaction to even the mention of Michael and the idea of Michael, just the look that he gets in his eyes and the way he describes him, you know, he, the devil's eyes and things like that. Like he is, he's almost not human. There's almost something about him that is supernatural, even though it isn't, but it feels that way. You know, it feels just impossible to relate to this guy, which I think makes the movie even more terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that mystery is what makes him so terrifying. Again, it's what separates him from just being another guy in a mask, right? Everybody has their motivations. Leatherface is uh, this cannibal who's like mentally challenged, who falls into this thing with his family that that's what they do. They eat people, they kill people. Where Leatherface, or uh, rather Jason, he drowns in the lake and whatnot. He wants revenge for that on the teens that didn't yeah. protect him. But Michael, it's like one day he just decides I'm gonna kill my sister. And then I'm gonna come back for whatever reason. You don't even know why he comes back. And so having to guess kind of, or create your own story, I feel like for why he's doing the things he does is ultimately gonna be more terrifying than being straight up told where that was, before we started recording, we kind of talked about uh, the Rob Zombie take on it where he's basically like an abused kid and this is what you, happens when you abuse kids. And it's like, well, that doesn't make him scary anymore because you kind of understand why he's doing the things he's doing and there's this whole explanation and by demystifying him he becomes less scary because you understand whereas if you just look at michael myers as a thing that does random acts of violence i mean that is much more terrifying because you clearly can't you can't reason with them but also you don't know right. how much more that kind of like wrath is going to extend or is he just targeting one person is he targeting anybody that kind of like guessing game for me makes him incredibly terrifying in this thing that we never truly understand, in, at least in the context of like the first film. Yeah, you, you wonder like, what is he after? Does he have any sort of a code? Are these kids in danger, the little kids? Um, and the only thing in the movie I would say that speaks to his, um, what he's after at all, or his code is 
when he sees the little kid getting bullied and the one bully runs away and all he does is grab him. He just holds him there for a second and scares the shit out of him and lets him go. And like, it's almost Michael taking a stand against bullying, right? Or, or whatever, however you want to interpret that. But like, that's the only thing that you could even feel like you could negotiate with him about. Like he, he just does not have a, there's no moral center there. There's no, there's no motivation. He's just like, he's a shape. He's just a thing walking around doing these things. Well, I love too that, I mean, he's been institutionalized for so long, but also this idea that he is not human. When he answer, when um, he kills one of the girls who's on the phone and she's calling Lori for help, and then he picks up the phone and he like puts it to his ear and he kind of just like looks at it and he doesn't really know what to do with it. Almost like right. little moments like that or when he kills somebody, he kind of just like does a head tilt, like he's admiring his work. Like it's almost like he doesn't know how to behave in the real world in a sense that makes him seem like a, a foreign object in the world, basically. Like he doesn't fit into any scenario and all he can do is just kill his way through all of his problems or just kind of like kill his way through the world because that's all he knows how to do at this point. That's all he is. Yeah. He's That's why I say it's like Jaws on land mm -hmm. because it is almost like you're dealing with a shark. Yeah. Like he's got, he's got nothing to him except murder. He's <laughs> just all about murdering. This is his, uh, his primal instinct and he's been uh, restraining that instinct for a long time. But I really love Loomis because, who's played by Donald Pleasance because Loomis really does a great job of dehumanizing him to the point where he only calls him Michael or Michael Myers, I think, once or twice in the whole film. It's always, he refers to him as an it or uh, as the evil. He refers at one point, he says, the evil is gone from here. And little bits of dialogue like that do so much legwork in dehumanizing Michael and kind of Loomis making sure everybody that he comes into contact realizes, like, this is not somebody that we're, the end goal is not to, to put him back away. The end goal is that we probably are going to have to kill this thing because it's not even a person. It's a pure embodiment of evil in a way that nobody you've ever encountered has been before. Yeah, like the build up to, to the actual, before you even see him, he's talking about, you know, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. And the, the nurse says to him, can we call him, can we call it him? Mm -hmm. And he says, yeah, if you want to or whatever. Like, But instead of having like a weird flashback or like showing the doctor working with young Michael or anything like that or, or trying to reach him you just have that dialogue when Donald Pleasant's just saying I tried to reach him for this many years and I spent the other amount of years just trying to keep him behind bars because I realized there's no getting to him there's there's nothing to this guy and that does all the legwork of establishing the character to the extent he's even a character he's you know he's more of a like you said like a thing or a shape yeah and I think that it's really interesting. Obviously, he doesn't have dialogue in the movie, uh, which not a lot of slasher uh, villains do. But I think he might as like his breathing is more powerful than anything he could say. Like if you look at somebody yes. like Freddy, Freddy Krueger is the guy who like has the one liner. He likes calling people bitch. And he's got all these kind of like he's having <laughs> fun and killing. Whereas Michael, it's it's more just like clinical. It's just like, hey, I'm going through the motions and capturing his breathing, especially in scenes when you don't see him first, right? There's one scene where I think Bob is going to get more beer and Bob opens up one closet, he's not in there, but we know that Michael's there because we can hear him breathing. And that is more terrifying because we assume that he's gonna be somewhere and jump out and kill him, 
but knowing that he is in the room and not being able to see him, like that is what makes that scene so terrifying. And there's several scenes like that where you just hear him breathing and knowing that that presence is there, even if you can't necessarily see it, it really does heighten these very, again, simple scenes, simple frameworks for the actions that play out in these scenes where Michael is, but it really does make all the difference instead of him having some kind of dialogue or him saying, like calling Lori by her name or something like that. Yeah, that would lessen the impact of, of Michael as a as a killer. Like, and and the, the breathing thing is like the only human thing about him. It's the only, it's like a little reminder that he is technically a human being and he does need to breathe, you know, and he's breathing through this mask and it's real loud. And that it's just, uh, it's really ominous. Something that I think is really interesting too is that they make sure that they portray Michael the same way as they do in the later part of the film, but also in the beginning, right? That first kill where he kills his sister. We don't have him have some piece of dialogue with her or anything like that. It's just, he's going through the motions. The only version of Michael Myers that the viewer knows is what we see from the very beginning, and it doesn't evolve from that. The first thing we see is he puts on that clown mask, he goes up and he stabs his sister to death. And he never alters from those early kind of behaviors or actions to the point where, again, it doesn't show like there's any growth or there's any degree of a person. He's always been the thing or it or the embodiment of evil from day one, basically. Yeah, he's just this predator who, who just only grows physically. He just gets to be this big, tall guy. And he was dangerous when he was a little kid. And now he's even worse because he's a full grown man and he's out. And he's the exact same predator he always was. <laughs> That's one thing I really loved about uh, revisiting the original is that he looks like a normal guy, right? I mean, he he's probably, I don't know, six feet tall or something like that, but he doesn't look uh, supernatural in his figure, right? I mean, Jason is right. Jason was always very like bulking and huge, and he only got bigger and bigger and taller those, as those movies went on. And that was one of the things that they did in the Rob Zombie movie that I didn't think was great. It was okay, but it wasn't great. But he's like six, eight almost 300 pounds in that movie. So he's like a linebacker. So it's like, it's very <laughs> difficult to see that unfolding as organically. Cause it's like, okay, so this freak of muscle athlete guy is like going to be chasing people around to kill them. It's like, okay, that's a little less realistic. Whereas if Michael Myers is just kind of this average guy, there's nothing physically special about him. It does make it again, blend in more to this suburban horror. This could be a neighbor. This could be anybody that you see in the grocery store. The difference is, is that they're not wearing a mask in a Dickies paint suit. Right. Yeah. And, and if you have him be this giant hulking presence, then it's like, it's kind of like who gave him access to a weight room? Like, why was, <laughs> yeah. why was he doing that? Obviously you knew he was, he was dangerous. Um, yeah. He, it is much, much better that he's kind of a normal sized guy. The only physically scary thing about him is the mask. Right. Like he just and but that even the mask is meant to just make him look even less human, uh, you know, over the course of things like he's 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 barely human. He's he's an apex predator who's just walking around stalking these people and stalking them expertly, too. He's not dumb in any way. Like he knows when to wait. He knows when to strike. He's just really, really good at this stuff. And it makes for a better movie. Thank God he is. You know, <laughs> yeah. it was obviously he was written, but yeah, he's you know, like when he waits for. Um, I can never get the 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 two girls straight. The names of them. The the girl who gets killed in the car, 
the way he waits for her and kind of ends up in the back seat of the car that's just just brilliant the way he the way he waits for it he just takes his time and he's he's not he's not rushing anything and that's another creepy thing about him is that he's not in a hurry he's just there to do his work he doesn't really seem to care if anybody sees him like he he's driving around the whole movie he's there he's not super hiding like he knows when to hide and when not to but and like he's smart like he waits for the cop to turn his back to drive by you know and but later on in the movie he carries the the body of the girl just through the front door just for anyone to see who happens to be looking out the window you know he doesn't he doesn't seem to super care about stuff like that and now for a brief intermission if you've been enjoying this episode of daily horror habit please take a moment to subscribe to the show on your preferred streaming platform or leave us a review on itunes and thank you for your continued support and i hope you enjoy the remainder of today's horrifying episode right and i think that again kind of like framing him as someone that is very intelligent in what they're doing is like very methodical. Again, it kind of gets to the core of the idea that, oh, if he wanted to and he was done killing people or he got bored or tired or whatever, he could just take off the mask and just walk off down the street and he would just blend into the neighborhood. And uh, it was interesting reading about the, uh, the mask that they ended up settling with. Like originally it was supposed to be more like the mask that he killed, he wears when he kills his sister. It was supposed to be something to that extent, which was, very creepy but then again it kind of it makes it seem not as realistic like oh this is a clown killer now or something like that whereas the mask that they went with was like a cheap knockoff version of a captain kirk mask Mm -hmm. and then they painted it white obviously and they made the eyes more open so they could black them out more and i just love that not only because it looks so strange but it does it's very like emotionless right it kind of it looks like it's an approximation of a yeah but not quite a human being. yeah it's a human being but at the same time it's a lesser one almost at that it's like you can't tell what he's thinking from that whereas if you have like a leather face when he smiles or opens his mouth the mouth still opens and stuff but it's it is a uh it's it's very funny i know you said you hadn't seen the sequels but the masks get progressively worse in the sequels for whatever reason like i think they lost the original one and then the quality just kept like degrading for the next three or four sequels to the point where it almost looks like cartoonish where it just looks like some shitty mask that somebody just found on the ground somewhere it's it (laughs) there's never an explanation for that but it's very funny yeah i like that indie film thing where they don't know how important it's going to be and they're just like yeah who cares about the mask somebody lost it or we somebody kept it or whatever we don't know what happened to it (laughs) yeah you just accidentally made like one of the greatest movies ever well that's the thing like when you think about indie movies and kind of like these rock and roll style productions where they're kind of running by the seat of their pants the whole time they have i mean apparently there was like five different people on set that would play as michael in certain points like nick castle is primarily the shape but then you had deborah hill his uh, co-writer and producer who was the hands for when they did the uh the first person shots at the beginning with the mask just because they couldn't get the child actor that day or something. And so they're like, oh, we need a stand-in and they just used her. And so when you think about it, it's like how much of this is actually smart creative decisions and how much of this is luck? Granted, obviously there's tons of talent there because John Carpenter remains almost undefeated in my mind in terms of directors. But I mean, you have to think like how much of this is ingenuity and then how much of it is just like, hey man, we're just a group of kids that don't know what we're doing making a movie. I think they said the average age of everybody on staff was like 26 
or something like that. And it's just like not right. super experienced people, but there's a passion for making something that is a standout from kind of the idea of what horror was or slashers at the time, uh, so to speak, before that genre like literally exploded. But um, it, it makes it, it, it's interesting watching the movie now and going back and watching it and being like, how is this not as meticulously planned as I thought it was in my head? Because it just holds up so well at almost every single level. Like that's why I revisit this movie so many times a year. Cause it really just, it is a phenomenal piece of uh, filmmaking, whether it was completely intentional or not, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's gotta be a lot of both, right? A lot of talent and a lot of luck, but the, um, and the willingness, the, like you said, everybody, the average age was 26 and that speaks to the youthful willingness to take risks and to not necessarily know when they're doing something crazy or whatever, like something that's totally outside the box, but, and to almost accidentally make a classic. But of course you have John Carpenter at the helm, so it's not super an accident, but yeah, it's it's probably a lot of both. Yeah, so in terms of uh, Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, every single time I watch this movie, I get a better appreciation for her character just because of how, I mean, it's like played out to describe uh, final girl characters is this, but like how pure of a character she is. There's a lot of times, especially like slashers get a bad rap a lot of the time for characters that aren't likable or characters that the only reason you're rooting for them is that they're framed as the protagonist, right? It's like, oh, well, right. yeah, they're the protagonist. So I have to want them to survive basically. But really like from the jump, she is such a remarkable character and how she is just so pure in terms of like good nature. It's more about her being just good natured being so different from her classmates and kind of this wanting to fit in and yet not willing to subscribe to maybe the attitudes and temperaments of some of her friends like we learn in her interactions with them. What do you think of her as a uh, as like the a final girl? Uh, she's amazing. And I think um, part of it is that you're she's the only character you're really made to care about in the entire movie. Like everyone else is one dimensional. And I think that's by design. Like the, the other girls are uh, preoccupied with what young people might be preoccupied with and she's studying and she she's the only babysitter they're all babysitters right but she's the only one who cares about the kids it seems <laughs> yeah. is is really good yeah. with the kids and she's like reading to him and she's watching movies with him he says can we go make a jack-o-lantern he's like creeped out and she says i'm not gonna let anything happen to you you know like you can really relate to her and, and you like her right away you know because she has she really seems like a uh like a nice person almost like a real human being whereas everybody else is kind of one-dimensional like i said but yeah and and i think that's by design because it's she really stands out especially with her dumb friends <laughs> you know it's almost like why is she friends with these people right. in the first place but but by the end of it you're really i think you're rooting for her the whole time but and she's really the only one who sees michael because she's the only one who's paying attention yes. they're all like looking the other way and doing other things but she's acutely aware of her surroundings. Mm -hmm. And and of course, as a viewer, you're aware of the surroundings too. So you're like, look, it's Michael Myers right there. And she's trying to say the same thing. So she's, of course, as any protagonist is a stand-in for the viewer, but she's, yeah, she's really likable, you know? And she's obviously very resourceful and, and as we see in the end. Yeah, and I think that that's a great point you made in that we, she, we are so in tune with her because she reacts as you would hope yourself would. Like, I'm, oh, I would be super aware of what's going on. I would be, start connecting the dots like, 
hey, I saw that strange car earlier. Hey, there's this weird guy with a mask that keeps reappearing. Like you said, though, like her friends are just like, oh, it's probably so and so. Like, I don't know if I would be just kind of like explaining these coincidences away when it's we're getting to like <laughs> yeah. the fifth or sixth uh, instance. But something that I really appreciate, too, is that brief moment when she's in class, right? And she's staring out the window, kind of daydreaming. And then she sees Michael and that's like a creepy moment. But I was paying more attention this time to the fact that she's daydreaming. Her teacher calls on her. She asks her to repeat it, but then she immediately like knows the answer, which is a great way of showing not only how intelligent she is, but then that bleeds into her character being like the intelligent authority of the group. And yet she never kind of like flaunts that in people's faces, her friends' faces rather, or she's never necessarily arrogant in a way that, I don't know, some characters might if they are like the quote unquote smart one of the group. Um, and that was just something that I think, again, that trickles down into how she deals with a threat that clearly none of her friends are able to because as soon as her friends uh, encounter Michael, we know how their fates go. And yet you have Lori yeah. who's actually able to like defend herself and she even tries to like fake him out at one point, right? When she goes to hide in the closet, she opens up the uh, porch doors to make him think that she jumped out. And right. I just like little, mo even though he doesn't buy it, like that's an intelligent move that you would think that is very realistic instead of like, oh, I'm just going to cower and hide and that's the only place you could hide. I'm going to make him try to like think I went that way instead of me hiding in the closet. Yeah, you're almost disappointed like that she's just hiding, but then you think, oh no, she's not just hiding. She has a whole plan, you know, and, and just and her using anything at her disposal to, to kind of try to incapacitate Michael. Like at first it's the, the crochet needle mm. and then the, the coat hanger, you know, and she gets him right in the eye with that thing. And, uh, you know, but twice she, she discards the knife, like it doesn't mean anything, which, which frustrates me every time, like, just pick up the knife, but, but still he's going after her and trying to strangle her anyway. So it's not like he needed the knife, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, she's, she's just really, really smart and she, and so is he. So, or at least he's cunning or whatever. I don't know if he could pass a written exam on anything. <laughs> I don't know if he can read or write, but he can, he's certainly a cunning predator and she's, she's every bit his match. So that's really cool. Yeah. And one other thing about just like her being the intellectual one of the group of friends is that she never comes, her character never comes off as like a wet blanket, right? Cause she's hanging out with no. these people that she is clearly much smarter than, and yet she's never really rubbing it in their faces. But then at the same time, when they're doing like teenager things and they're driving around smoking in the car, she's never like, we don't, her character never becomes this kind of like preachy character. Like you really shouldn't be doing that or this and that. She kind of is along for the ride to a certain point. But then even like when she hits the joint, you see her face and she's like, it's like so harsh for her or whatever. And it's kind of just, right. it never completely corrupts her or makes her viewed as just like one of her other friends who is like, not paying attention to anything is much more preoccupied with like boys and whatnot, but she's willing to participate and yet it never kind of makes her forget kind of like who her character is introduced as almost. Yeah, and I like one little thing that I really like is right after they run into um, the sheriff, or her, the, the girl, other girl's dad, they've been smoking and I, he like leans into the car, they open the window and I'm thinking to myself, he's got to smell it. And then as they drive away, she says, he, he could smell it. I know that. Like mm -hmm. she actually voices what you're thinking right. in that scene. It's like, okay, good. That, at least she said that, you know, yeah. because there's no way he wouldn't have smelled it. So. Right. Whereas her 
friend is just like, oh, no, he couldn't smell it. And it's just like, well, no, he definitely could. But that's a great point. You're right. Yeah, like all her friends are just out to lunch completely, like just, and that's probably why they get killed, right? <laughs> like, because they're not not super paying attention. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But uh, also, I mean, Laurie Strode's character is so fantastic as being, she's not completely a victim. She's one of Michael's victims. And yet her intellect puts her a peg above the actual victims, right? But then at the inverse of that, you have Donald Pleasance, who is this authority on what is happening and yet he fights so long to become to be heard essentially and his character is super fascinating to me because his character is a certain type of authority and yet his character is perceived as like the hero but he is terrified the entire movie he is fearful yes all he does is communicate to everybody how terrified he is how terrified they should be which in thinking about like the traditional kind of hero archetype The hero is always supposed to be this person that is like, I can solve any problem with a gun or my gusto for whatever my mission is. Whereas we learn that uh, Loomis has a gun and yet he almost like squeezes off a few rounds when that part of the house falls down and breaks a window. Like he is terrified to his core. There's nothing about him that is brave. There's nothing about him that makes him seem like he's a physically dominating force. And even though he has a gun, I mean, he doesn't come off as being intimidating with it. it. And it's just a very interesting dynamic for the perceived hero of the film to have. It really is. And I haven't really thought about it that way, but that's that's very true. And that's a great point. Like he is, he's almost doing it out of a sense of duty rather than courage or any kind of like gusto or I'm going to go get him and, you know, I'm going to take care of this. And I'm the only one who can solve this problem. He doesn't have that bravado to him at all. Like. You know, the sheriff says to him, oh, it seems to me you're just plain scared. And he says, yeah, I guess I am. Like, there's, he doesn't shy away from that at all. Like, he is terrified and he just wants everybody else to understand what's going on. It's probably why, like, his fear is so infectious that he's able to talk to Brackett the way he does. Basically, he tells Brackett at one point, he's like, tell your men to keep their mouth shut and their eyes open. It's like, dude, you just got here and you're telling the sheriff and what his men, what they need to be doing. And yet... Brackett buys into it because he's like, he listens yeah, he yeah. listens after seeing just how terrified he is. And I mean, Donald Pleasance, I mean, I, I love Donald Pleasance. And this is probably in terms of the other, because he went on to do two other Carpenter films. Um, and this is probably my favorite performance of his, um, just in terms of he's barely in any of the movie too. He leaves such an impact. And I think he's only in like 15 minutes of the movie, maybe, or 20 minutes of the whole right. movie. And just the way that it's chopped up, it makes it seem like he's this presence that is always there. And yet going back and realizing how little of the movie he's in, like it just kind of reinforces how much you're hanging on or how much I was hanging on to every single one of his words. And just the idea that he describes evil as coming to Haddonfield. And just, I mean, he gives such a phenomenal performance that it really is one of those performances that is so his fear is made so palpable that he doesn't even have to say much it's more about how he's selling the few lines that he has that makes his character so uh so impactful yeah and a lot of times he's just kind of looking out especially in that first scene when you meet him and he's in the car he's kind of looking out the window and nothing terrible has happened yet Mm. he's just dreading having to go take michael to, to in front of the judge he doesn't even want to see him he's he has this really palpable sense of dread. He's staring out the window like, all right, here's what we got to do. And, uh, you know, I'm going to explain to you what's happening, but I'm, 
I'm really, I'm scared now. And he's, you can just feel the fear throughout his whole performance. And just, yeah, he doesn't have to say much. And what I love too is that his character is so fearful and so on edge. And yet they incorporate a few moments of showing Loomis more kind of like laid back almost. Where like when he's going through the graveyard with the uh, graveyard keeper or whatever you want to call him. And right. the guy's like telling him this salacious story about a murder that happened. The guy gets right to the punchline and Loomis is like, are we almost there? Basically just like completely kills the guy's vibe because he is so yeah. determined in, I need to know this information. Nothing, your bullshit story about gossip is not going to interfere with that. And we even get another moment where the kids are, these neighborhood kids are like running onto uh, Michael Myers's house's porch and then yes, he's in the, I love this he's in the bushes and he's like, Lonnie, get your ass out of here. And he like has this little <laughs> laugh to himself. And then Brackett comes up behind him and scares the shit out of him. Like it's a, right. it's a fantastic moment that shows as uptight as his character is, he is still a person, right? Because at that point, he's almost kind of comparable to Michael in a way. Whereas Michael's sole thing is killing. Loomis's sole purpose, it seems, all of these years has been Michael Myers. And to see him right. talk about or interact in anything that's not Michael Myers related, I feel like just a brief glimpse of it, it still shows that he's human. He can still he can still be a kid almost like, oh, I'm going to scare the shit out of these kids for a minute. Like, it's not always Michael Myers 100% of the time. Maybe it's 98% in his life. But that little moment of levity, it really does humanize him in a great way, I think. Yeah, and so does his fear. Like, you know, you get the feeling that Michael Myers doesn't even That's true. know to be afraid of anything. You know, I couldn't imagine him being afraid of anything. But then, you know, uh, Loomis is, is afraid of Michael Myers. Like, and just to a degree where you feel like he kind of changed his life when he met him. Like, he was just so, so troubled by the idea of this kid even existing. <laughs> And then him getting out, it's like, all right, I got to do every last thing I can to, to stop this. But I would probably rather not be here. Right. You know, he just wishes this was not his uh, his mission in life, unfortunately. But that kind of speaks to the tragic nature of his uh, of his not as only his profession, but of his situation. Right. He's had to dedicate his entire life, even if this kid has been locked up for 15 years. He even says, like, I was trying to work with him, rehabilitate him. And then I spent all this time trying to keep him locked up. None of this kind of like, oh, we're going to rehabilitate and then release him. His whole goal or last 15 years has probably been spent ensuring that Michael Myers cannot escape. And something that they tackle in uh, in some of the later films to uh, lesser a lesser degree, but it's still interesting to see the different ways that they examine that relationship between Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers. But uh, I think we should get into some of our favorite kills of the movie because this movie, again, is a... it's it's key in its simplicity, and yet I feel every single kill is memorable, even if by today's yeah. standards you might be like, well, they're not that creative of kills maybe, they're not the goriest of kills or the bloodiest of kills, and yet it's the way that Carpenter presents everything, every single kill, that is super memorable. So what are uh, what's one of your favorite kills from the movie? Um, I love when uh, the girl in the car, it's Annie, is that? No, Annie's the other one. I'm not sure which is which, but um, the girl, when she goes to the car, it's it's so well done because she, at first it's locked and she goes and get, goes, has this big journey to go get the key and she gets the key, she comes back and then it's unlocked. She doesn't put the key in it and it seems to dawn on her a little bit and then she sees the, 
the uh, that someone has been breathing in the car that it's, that the, it is coming from the inside, the condensation or whatever it is, and uh, and then he grabs her from behind. I mean, that's that's just brilliant. Like that's probably my favorite kill in the whole movie because the real the the realization that she has right before he grabs her is oh there's somebody in this car with me like she's trying to get rid of the the stuff on the on the windshield and she realizes it's coming from the inside that's just brilliant i love too that she's like whistling the entire time she walks to the car it's locked she's like ah shit i gotta get my keys she walks back in she's whistling she gets to the car when she opens the door she doesn't realize it's been unlocked and she sits down yeah and she's whistling the entire time and once she sits down in the seat she stops whistling because she realizes hey wait that was that was locked a minute ago and then it goes into right. her wiping away the condensation. And then of course he grabs her. But what I really love about that scene too is, is that we get two perspectives, right? It's shot from the passenger seat of the car and we see him sit up and choke her out. But then it also cuts to the other side where the window is filled with condensation. And so our vision of it is a little blurred. And yet jumping between those two perspectives, I mean, it really does make for a more intimate scene in that you get that kind of, I don't know if it's necessarily salacious, but you get that more kind of like personal, oh, this guy's choking this person out inside the car. And then the exterior shot is showing you the kind of like muffled from afar version of what is happening. And that contrast I think is really interesting. It's interesting to kind of have the, you're a participant and then you're a viewer in a way that just jumping around with the perspective like that, it makes it more of a dynamic scene than I think it should be, right? Because at the end of the day, it's just a guy choking a woman which you've seen in how many movies, like there's nothing all that remarkable about what's happening, but it's more about the way that it's presented, I think that really stands out. Yeah, switching between those two points of view is really fantastic. Like that's just Carpenter being a genius, right? Like, okay, here's how we can make this more interesting. And then the, to leave her on the horn, you know, honking, the lay it on the horn is just such a nice little, little bow on top of the whole scene. Well, I love too that we get that moment where um, I think it's, the little boy, he hears the horn, right? And so from a, we get his perspective and then we get one last perspective inside the garage. And so our association with what that horn represents is much different than obviously the neighbors. But again, it kind of reinforces this idea that this nightmare is unfolding in the suburbs and people are dying horrific deaths. And yet it's not so dramatic that the entire neighborhood is taking notice or it's the entire neighborhood is, um, there's like a, a posse going around trying to hunt down the killer, right? Nobody finds out about it probably until Loomis kills Michael because he's the one that's firing a gun off that's going to draw attention. That's the one thing right. that the neighborhood can't dismiss. You can dismiss a car horn. You can dismiss a car backfiring all of these things. A gunshot, you cannot. Multiple gunshots, you cannot. But it does. it's not until the last 90 seconds of the movie where things finally occur to the degree that the entire neighborhood can't not take notice. Yeah, and even even Dr. Loomis, like his plan is really, when you think about it, not all that great because he's just walking around. He's just kind of walking around looking at the house. And he happens to be in front of the house when the kids come screaming and running out. And he says, oh shit, that it must be, it must be Michael. But, and that's a nice little happenstance there. But yeah, and until that moment, it's all very small. It's all, or at least uh, insular. Like there's no way that everybody could possibly know what's going on. Until, but you know, except for Dr. Loomis, right? And he knows something's happening behind one of these doors and he gets lucky with the kids running out and screaming. But yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. 
I think probably my favorite kill is going to be when Bob goes down to get another beer. Love that. Yeah. One. And then, of course, like I said earlier, there's this moment where you don't see Michael and there's a fake out where he goes to check one of the cabinets and there's nobody in there. But you can hear Michael breathing and that breathing really sets the tone in a way that it's like, okay, the evil is in the room or the evil is in the house. And having that confirmation that he's there and you can't see him is so terrifying to me. It's kind of like in, um, I don't know if you've seen Hereditary, but there's like this clicking sound that occurs and the clicking sound. I have, yes. You have seen it. Okay. So the clicking sound, right? I mean, initially it's not that it's somebody making a clicking sound. There's nothing on its own about that that's scary. But when you incorporate it, into the greater meaning behind that, like it becomes terrifying in that film. And it's the same thing yeah. with the breathing in the uh, in uh, Halloween, whereas, okay, it's a guy breathing on its own. There's nothing t- scary about that. And yet what that's associated with in Halloween just kind of heightens every scene that it's used in. And I mean, that scene where he grabs Bill and then he's not only picking, or Bob, and he's picking up by his throat, that's like the one supernatural moment of the film, right? That this this man is able to pick somebody up by their throat with one hand and hold him there right. and then stab him and pin him to the wall. Like that is probably the most, ov- well, other than him surviving, getting shot, but that's probably the one moment where it's like, Oh, maybe this guy's superhuman. He's got this superhuman strength. And yet he still carries himself. Like he is a machine. Like he's a man still, because once he stabs the guy and he just kind of like tilts his head and looks at him, like he's observing his handiwork but there's no really like celebration or glee in it. It's kind of just like instinctual, almost like he's standing there. He's like, I'm going to make sure this guy's really dead so I can go kill somebody else kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's very critical the way he kind of evaluates the, the, the dead body. Like he's just kind of looking at it like he's like he's interested and like he's making sure. And you don't quite know what's going through Michael's head at that moment which is, you know, you never should. You never do and you never should. Like he's, that's that's part of what makes him Michael Myers, right? Yeah, and I think that what I love so much is that all of those little moments that I was just talking about, like the breathing sound, the soundtrack and everything, all of that cuts when he's examining the body. Like there's no more breathing, there's no more soundtrack. It's just kind of like we're in this space with Michael admiring his handiwork. And yet there's, if there had been music there, there might've been that music might have served as a celebratory or something like that for him, at least like, oh, I killed another one kind of thing. Whereas it's almost as if he's just doing these things because he doesn't know what else to do. It's not like he enjoys right. it. He, it. He's not a Freddy. He's not giving a one liner or taking any pleasure in what he does. Whereas Michael, it's just like, yeah, man, this is just what I do, which is terrifying in and of itself, because at least you can understand why Freddy does the things he does. Whereas Michael, again, it comes back to why he is such a prolific slasher icon in my mind um, is because it's like there's no explanation for anything. And that's probably my least favorite um, trend that a lot of the sequels tried to do where they tried to explain things. And it's like, we don't need more explanation. The more you explain- No, that's what makes it scary. Yeah, the more you explain things and demystify it, it's like, okay, so it's a guy in a mask that was abused as a kid or something like that. And you're just like, Okay, so there's no more mystery, so I'm not wondering. I, the, I mean, yeah. that's what's so great about this movie is that it's so simple. I've seen it a dozen times probably, probably more than that. And it's still a movie that I think about constantly because we're not given any answers for anything. And while the answers might not be even that interesting, like it's that ambiguity that really makes it stick in your mind in a way that 
movies that feel the need to explain everything just don't. Yeah, that's the best part of this or this character is that nothing is explained. You you can project whatever you want onto it, but it's probably better not to to just see him as this this force who doesn't really have anything going on in his head except here's what I'm doing. Like and like you said everything cuts out, the sound cuts out when he's tilting his head and it's almost like what's going on in his head is like just blank, just nothing. You know, and that's why why are you killing these people? There's no answer. And that that makes it much, much scarier than than if he had some kind of a, a background in any way, if you understood this character in any way. And you and I were talking earlier before we started recording just about how shocked we were at the realization of just how little actual blood or violence is in the movie. I mean, it's one of those things, again, like I was talking about with you earlier in that Everybody assumes like, oh, those the slasher, famous, most famous slasher movies, they have to be known for all their excessive blood and gore and all these things. And it's like, that's not really what a lot of these movies were about. Like this movie, Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre are two fantastic slashers that kind of kickstarted the whole essence of what slashers are. And yet those movies have a handful of the drops of blood in them. And it kind of just goes yeah. to show that the idea of what, what a general audience thinks of a slasher is, is not really at the core of what those movies started out as. And if anything, I mean, I like some of the sequels for various slasher movies, but the reason that we keep coming back to the originals is because it wasn't about excessive amounts of blood. It wasn't about shocking you with this crazy violence. It was more about the way that they framed these things and how they crafted that tension and how it was more about the filmmakers rather than what they were actually filming that made it uh, works i mean masterpieces in my mind in terms of horror movies absolutely yeah very very well said like it's a lot of this movie happens in your head or whatever you're thinking is dangerous or or when you're with Lori the whole time obviously in her like you're you're on her side and you kind of understand what she's going what she's thinking the whole time but um with with michael you just don't need all this blood like for the i mean i think the first on-camera kill besides his sister is almost an hour into the movie so that's it's clearly not what it's about we only have like 34 minutes or so of the movie left when he first kills um the the girl like so that's when his his actual kill spree on halloween night starts he you know obviously he killed uh his sister and then the truck driver off screen but his his Halloween spree doesn't start until an hour into the movie. So that's clearly not the point of the movie is for him to have all these this gory kills or whatever. It's it's more about uh, the the atmosphere of it, the, the kind of the feel that John Carpenter brings. Yeah, it's more about his presence, right? It's more about an evil presence being in the town. And yeah, obviously an evil presence is going to do evil things and he's going to end up killing people. But it really is more about Michael infecting this town more so than I think a lot of other slasher icons because usually the slasher icons or I keep referring to them as that but like Freddy or Jason or whatever it's always the victims are going to them whereas the vigilant or the antagonist is coming to Haddonfield right so right he's coming and his presence is known but it's not necessarily known in violent acts that are immediately aware to the rest of the town it's more about these little moments like oh this weird guy's popping up some some quote unquote kids broke into the hardware store and stole masks and knives and rope, which I feel like Brackett should be a little more concerned about that. Like I, that's like three very <laughs> yeah. kind of like ominous uh, items to steal from a hardware store. But 
I mean, in terms yeah. of like, there's no immediate red flags. There's lots of maybe we'll call them like yellow flags, but there's no event that immediately sets the town on edge. And I think that that is a very, a very um, not supernatural, but it's a, it's more of just like he is this presence and Carpenter portrays that in a really smart way. He does that with that atmosphere rather than having it be the body count be 15 or 20 people. Yeah, that, and that would make the movie that that wouldn't be it wouldn't be as good a movie if, if all that stuff was going on, if they didn't build up to it or and there's really it's not like nothing happens because you, you get you get these scares every so often in the movie just from him being there just from him popping up in random spots you don't like you know what he did all these years ago but and you know what he's capable of because of donald pleasance's character but you don't see it until later and you don't need to like you just know that he's evil and that something terrible is is happening and that it's really bad that he's around and you keep spotting him and it's like oh shit there he is and you don't even super know what you're afraid of at the beginning you know like he's just kind of there but you trust Donald Pleasance's character so much because the performance is so convincing that that this is really really bad that he's back in Haddonfield. Well, it's interesting you say that because there's that scene at the end where he gets into where Michael gets into a struggle with Lori and she rips his mask off and we get a brief glimpse of his face. And John right. Carpenter talked about that moment in that he says the power of suggestion because he said that lots of people would tell him that the scariest part is when you, that you see Michael's disfigured face and. John Carpenter said, well, we didn't do anything to his face. There's a little bit of makeup on his eye to show his eye was gouged. But it's not as if his face is uh, inhuman. It's not like he looks like a burn victim or something like that. He's just right. a guy in a mask. And so, again, like there were there. It could have been very easy to have a big scare when you take the mask off. He looks like Jason. He's all deformed or something. But again, it's a guy in a mask. And yet all of the tension and kind of legwork that Carpenter puts into the film for the entire runtime, he's able to have that payoff when in reality the payoff is, yeah, it's what we assumed all along. It's just a guy in a mask. Right. That can get shot yeah. a half a dozen times. And fall out a window and walk away. But he's, yeah, it's it's really good that he's just a guy. Like, because it, that's the groundwork that he lays the whole time for her to pull off the mask. And you could just see a perfectly normal guy and there's no and it's still terrifying because because of the reveal not because of what his face looks like because the film is such an expert it's such an expertly made movie that even something that isn't scary on its face not no pun intended is is scary when that happens you know right and again yeah it could have been a very i feel like had he had the reveal of his face and then it's just he's all disfigured or something like that or he looks other he looks like a monster or something like that. Then at the end, you're just like, oh, well, if he's a monster or a supernatural person, all of a sudden, why didn't he do more? You know what I mean? Whereas when the reveal is, is that he's just human, you're like, yeah, that tracks based on everything else that was in the movie. That makes perfect sense. And that's the perfect kind of culmination of where the film's headed. And it serves as a fantastic finale to a uh, to a fantastic film. It certainly does. Yeah, it's it's perfect. And I mean, I love that ending, too, because it really does reinforce Donald Pleasance's entire character in that he is justified in his fear. Again, whereas fear is usually used against a character, whereas another character will use it as a, a measure of their own character, saying like, oh, well, you're just a coward. You're fearful. At the end of the film, when Michael, when 
Ple Donald Pleasance looks down and Michael's not there, and then it cuts back up to Loomis's reaction. He doesn't look shocked. He doesn't look scared. He's just kind of like a blank face like, oh, I knew this was going to happen. This is not surprising. Yeah. This is what I've been telling everybody. And in that, I don't know that he gets any, he definitely doesn't get any joy or pleasure out of being right. But there is a type of solace there where it's like, he spends the whole movie trying to convince people. And to the degree, like you almost think he th he starts to think he's crazy, right? He's going to tell everybody right. this, this madman, this evil is here and it's going to kill everybody. And yet by the end of the movie, he's the only one that has been on the right side of the story. Yeah. And, and like when he, uh, when he shoots him, he he's still trying to fire even after Michael falls out the window. Like he he realizes he hasn't done enough, and he knows that. And and then there is kind of a look on his face after Michael's gone of like, well, I'm not crazy, you know. And and it is kind of a relief to him almost, you know. And 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 as much as anything like that could be a relief, you know, this thing that he's been chasing this whole time is gone, and he has to. I guess the night continues or whatever. I don't know. But that's, yeah, obviously it's a perfect place to end the movie. Yeah, and I think that that, that is something I picked up on more on my last rewatch was him dry firing because it really is this idea that it doesn't matter if the gun has six bullets or it's got, I don't know, 60 or 6,000 or whatever. It's never enough. Yeah. There's never enough things that they can do to ensure that the evil is dead because he believes in his heart that it is this, it is more of a thing than a person, right? This gun yeah. can help maybe the problem short term, but long term, there needs to be a bigger solution for this bigger problem. Um, but yeah, and kind of uh, wrapping up, were there any other uh, scenes or moments that you like that I kind of skipped over? I love just the the little one, two, three punch of the the corpses, the the Judith Myers headstone on the bed, and then uh, the the I don't know how Michael arranged the guy to, to come off the, the closet like that and to hang down. That's pretty great. I don't know if he taped his feet up there or what, but he took his time with that one just to, to scare the shit out of Lori and us. And then the, the girl in the, in the little cupboard there. And then of course him just over Lori's shoulder, just really, that blows me away every time. Just that, I think it's like a four minute sequence. If that, like it's, that's just, and that is a great way to show like him displaying his his handiwork as it was. And then at the yeah. same time, though, it's just bodies that are lying there. Obviously, it's very disturbing and gruesome, but it's not over the top, right? We're not like getting decapitated people or excessive amounts of blood. It's just these people, they leave the bodies and the corpses. They have to be recognizable because these are her friends. These are people. Right. These are not people. These are not just strangers or people she met at a party that she was hanging out with. These are her best friends, essentially, or this is her immediate friend group. And it just makes the their deaths have more of an impact on her, which, I mean, we're rooting for her the whole movie. So to see her as distressed as she is, I mean, it really does add a extra level of investment into it. But um, I really do love that shot, too, where his, his face just comes into frame and behind her. Like, that's probably, again, one of my favorite shots just because of how simple it is. It's not him right. walking through the door frame either. You know what I mean? It's just him standing there the whole time. But we only realize it about 10 seconds into the shot because then it starts to fade in more and more and more. Um, right. Even little moments like him just, he does, I mean, now we would call it like a stone cold setup where he just is lying on his back and then he sits up slowly and turns his head right. and looks at her. Like that is such a simplistic body movement, but it doesn't look human the way he does it, right? If you were, nope. if you got knocked on your back, you'd probably like roll over and then get on your knees and help you get up. You wouldn't just like sit up like the undead. And the fact that he does <laughs> that, I mean, 
it carries so much weight because it's like, it's like he's being reborn almost, or a machine or a robot is turning on. Yeah, it's it, there's some kind of mechanical element to the way he sits up and the, even the way he walks after that. Like it's just yeah, there's something inhuman about the whole character and especially that that setup. And that was something. One last thing in that uh, Carpenter didn't give Nick Castle a lot of like stage direction or. I guess just directions in general in terms of like Michael's motivation, why he's doing specific actions. He would tell Castle like, Michael's only motivation is to get from point A to point B in the scene. And I think that really shows in a great way in conveying that he's not, it, it's not almost as if Michael is doing the things that he's doing because he's thinking about them ahead of time. It's like pre-programming. And I think in limiting right. Castle, Nick Castle in that regard, it really does come through in that performance in a way that, I mean, Nick Castle for me will forever be the shape just because there are moments in the other movies that I think they stand up okay, but there's no performance like his in the first film for me. Right, right on. But uh, yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on to talk Carpenter and Halloween. And uh, I think I'm going to, I'll give you a list of some of the sequels that are worth checking out in case you're interested. Uh, hopefully I'll, I'll try to steer away from the ones that kind of get into the the wacky mythology of Michael Myers. Uh, but uh, there's there's a couple in there that I think you'll enjoy if you enjoy this one as much as you do. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to binge them now because I got to see some of the sequels at least. And you got to tell me which ones are good. Yeah, I'll tell you which ones to avoid. But uh, as always, man, it's a pleasure having you on to chat horror. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's always great to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.